And the truth of the scripture is that grace is a that giving is a gift of grace to us and from us. Money has no good or evil in it. It's owned by good people who do righteous things with it. It's owned by bad people who do unrighteous things with it. Because you will do with your money what your heart tells you to do. This is what Jesus says in Luke 12, 34, For where your treasure is, there your heart is also. Where your heart is, there you will also invest your treasure if you were to turn that around. If you find a good person using money badly, that's a bad person. Does everybody feel where I'm coming from? And so we are called to be good people with the good resources that we've been given. But money in of itself doesn't have a good or bad value. Just what is it that we are intent to do with it? And we need to be careful about what we do with it because the Word of God says that evil or money is the root of all evil, right? No. Money is a root of evil. Let me tell you, you cannot have any money nor desire any and be unrighteous in your heart. And you can have all the money in the world and be unrighteous in your heart. But it is a, an avenue to evil in our life. I believe God gives us according to our ability or according to our willingness and ability to give back. Can I tell you, there's a reason why I, I am confident I haven't won the lottery yet. There's actually two reasons. One, because I don't play the lottery. But I figure my statistic for winning is about the same regardless. And two, I'm not sure with $500 million if I could still be the righteous person that God called me to be. I hope that I could. I would pray that I could. But God oversees my life. He, he is transcendent above who I am. And He blesses those that He can bless without compromising them. And so I don't want you to walk around. The, the, the worst, single worst thing that you can do today is walk around here thinking that I care whether or not you have a lot of money in your pocket or very little money in your pocket. What I care about is that whatever you have in your pocket has caused you to glorify God. And that you don't focus on it. You guys ever focused on something so strongly that you end up losing it? You pay, you're just paying so much attention that you're not paying attention at all? Let me explain what I mean. I use this illustration in a second service. When I was working at the police academy, I, I used to train new shooters. And a new shooter, man, you grab them, you hand them a gun, and this is what they do. They go. There, did you all hear my teeth rattling? Their teeth are rattling because they grab a hold of a gun so so bad, so hard, because they're sure that it's, it's going to create an explosion in your hand. And so they're, they're freaking out, and they can't hit anything. They're focusing on this so much that they lose sight of the bigger picture. And I would come up behind them, and I would tell them, hold that gun like a baby bird. And I know that sounds silly. But I tell them, I want you to hold it strong enough to make sure it doesn't fly away but loose enough so you don't kill it. 
And I would tell you that God expects us to deal with our money the same way. Hold our money strongly enough that it doesn't get away except for the purposes in which it was created for. But don't focus on it so strongly that we destroy ourselves in it. Because the thing that we focus on, if we focus on it above our focus on God, we're assured that we won't have it for very long. Proverbs tells us this in 23, 4, and 5. Do not weary yourself to gain wealth. Cease from your consideration of it. When you set your eyes on it, it is gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies towards the heaven. So I've told you three very important things to lay the foundation for this. The first thing is that money won't make you good or bad. Second thing is that it will prove you're good or bad. And that in having it, in finding it, now there's nothing wrong with working, but in having it we must pay attention to the one that gave us the resource over the resource, or we'll be sure to lose both. Amen? The, the scripture is full of people who focused wrongly. Achan lost everything that he had in uh, Joshua because he decided to chase money. He got the Old Testament wrath of God. He took something from Ai, the city of Ai. He wasn't supposed to. Buried it in his tent thinking nobody saw it, but God saw it. It cost him his life, the life of his family, the life of all his cattle and everything that he owned was destroyed and then burnt to ash. That's the wrath of the God that's still alive today. Praise God, Jesus took that wrath for us. Amen? Achan was destroyed for his love of money. Delilah lost her loved, her beloved and the lives of, a, in, of hundreds because of her love for money and betraying Samson. Judas betrayed Jesus because of the money. See, all these people had one thing in common. Two things. They let their money reveal their character and they focused on it above their greatest blessing, which is God. Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts lost their own life because of their love for money and prestige. We need to focus and make sure that our view of money is right. When so many churches, so many people have the wrong view of money. And here's the right view according to the scriptures I'm going to read you. Money and your giving of it is a gracious work. This is the text. That, this is the words that Paul uses. The gracious work. What does that mean? It means that your giving is a grace. What is grace? Grace is a non-obligatory response. We give graciously as a non-obligatory response to the love that God gave us. Pastor Jim, why are you a giver? I give because Jesus gave everything He was for me. 
when I first got saved, a couple years after I got saved, I worked in a parking lot, a small group leader, Sunday school class, men's ministry, just kept doing something, kept my hand usually in two or three things at a time. And I had a guy ask me one time, he said, Pastor Jim, or I wasn't pastor then, he said, he said, tell me why you spend so much time at the church doing church stuff. I said, because the Savior of the world died for me. And my time and my resources is the only thing I have to give back. I'm trying the best I can, knowing that I can't sufficiently give grace in the area that grace was given to me. Jesus Christ gave His life. It's my responsibility, our responsibility as the church, to give our life and of our life so that others may know the same grace. This non-obligatory work, this, this gracious work, proves our love for God and our love for people. Everybody all right? I'm trying to just tell you the truth. I don't want to be the pastor that sits up here and puts a thumb on you over your giving. I want you to know that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. And through our giving, we're not only able to honor His sacrifice, but spread that word of that sacrifice all over a lost and dying world. We live in a community where two-thirds, two-thirds of the population is unsaved. We are in a post-Christian community. Did you hear that? That's scary. You go, oh, that's not possible. Everybody I talk to says they're a Christian. No, they, you're not a Christian because your grandmama goes to church. You're not a Christian because you grew up in the South. I had a guy ask me a couple weeks ago, I was having lunch with him, he moved here from Michigan, planted a church in Franklin. He said, what's the biggest challenge in the Southern church? I said, trying to convince people they're not Christians so that you can actually make them Christian. He said, what? I said, everybody here, man, they've been Christian since they were born. Just ask them. So you've got to tell them the depravity of who they are so that they can accept the gospel message. This is the community we live in. Why do we give? Because that's the community we live in. Two-thirds of the population doesn't know Jesus. That's two-thirds of this community. That's two-thirds of Nashville. That's two-thirds of Murfreesboro. That's two-thirds of Franklin. That's two-thirds of our population doesn't know Jesus in a land that was founded to proclaim the glorious love of Jesus. That is sad. And we need to fix it. We can fix it. Well, correction. We can help fix it through our gracious work as Christ fixes it. Ooh, that's good preaching right there. There's a whole bunch of what the other services didn't get. I don't feel any pressure in this service to last to, to keep going until two o'clock if I need to. Uh, <laughs> so anyway, I'm going to read 2 Corinthians 8, 1 through 9. And I want to talk to you about this gracious work. The four things regarding this gracious work that Paul had to say to the church in Macedonia and to us. Four things we need to figure out if we're going to be a church on mission. I've never made a secret of the fact that Launch Point Church, by its very vision and mission, is missional driven. Last week was intentionally spoken that we do not exist to grow the inside of this space. 
This building is not being built to grow the inside of that space. People asked me in the last service, they asked me in the service before that, Pastor Jim, there's only seating for 500 in this building, man, we're going to grow faster. Not here. We are going to grow faster, but not here. We named Launch Point Church for a reason. Because we believe this is the launching point for other churches. We have a vision to get to 500, break off a group of those people, raise up a pastor over them, and then to supply them with what they need to start a church somewhere else. You know why? Because we live in a post-Christian community. I had a guy tell me the other day, or told Angela, I don't trust any churches with their point in their last name. They're usually non-denominational, talking crazy. Ours is on purpose. Was it you that somebody said something like that to you? Huh? Oh, they put it on Facebook. So if you're watching on Facebook, now you know. <laughs> the name's very intentional because we live in a post-Christian world. Let me read 2 Corinthians to you. Because if we're going to be a church on mission, we need to know four things. Now, brethren, we wish to make known to you the grace of God which has been given in the churches of Macedonia. I want you to pay attention to this. Paul's writing to the Corinthians about Macedonia. He's writing to the Corinthians about Macedonia. So let me explain this. I don't do history lessons for the sake of history lessons, but so that you can kind of understand what's going on. Macedonia was a region. Inside of that region was the churches in Thessalonica, was the Berean churches, was the church in Philippi, and Carthage was here down south of that, of that region. So he's writing to this region about this region. He wants to give testimony about the goodness that's happening just north of them. Can I tell you, I'm super excited that no matter where I go, I hear the testimony of what the church in Lebanon at Launch Point Church is doing in other parts of this state. I love, and I, and I know it might be, I, I don't think it's self-centered, I just love the, the idea that my pastor brags about this church. He's not bragging about me. He's bragging about y'all. That you're faithful. That when every other church that he was counseling for a while was falling and decreasing in numbers and giving, we were increasing in numbers and giving. That we've always met the needs of those that had a need. And this is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's writing a letter to the to the Corinthian church to talk for this short amount of time during the letter about their giving. Let me tell you what Macedonia did as they collected money for the Jerusalem church because the Jerusalem church was very, very bad off. And so he continues, that in great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality. For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability, they gave of their own accord, begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. And this, not as we had expected, but they first gave themselves to the Lord and to us by the will of God. That's important. That's the motivation. Why do we give? Because we first gave ourselves to the Lord 
Macedonian church gave because they gave first themselves to the Lord and to them, which means and because they trusted the leadership they had been placed under. If you don't have both, you need to keep your money in your pocket. If you don't have Jesus, well, wealth of the wicked is laid up for the righteous. I'll still take your money if you don't have Jesus, but I'm going to tell you about Jesus. But I'll tell you, if you don't trust my leadership, if you don't trust the leadership of the elders here, if you don't trust the leadership of Pastor Rick, I have a sincere question, and I, and I don't mean this any kind of way. Why are you here? If you don't believe that your pastor prays, that your pastor seeks the face of God, that your pastor believes and the leadership and the eldership here believe that this is the next step to ensure the kingdom of God grows in our two-thirds lost community, then why are you here? I don't want you to go, but if you're going to stay, I want you to be able to say, I gave myself to the Lord first, and I trust my leadership. So we urged Titus, as he had previously made a beginning, so he would also complete in you this gracious work as well. But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in the gracious work also. I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, man, listen to this, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. Amen. There's four things I need this church to understand out of this text in regard to being a church on mission, in regard to this gracious work. First, a gracious work is relational work. The second, second word in this text is, first is and, brethren, which means, let me start talking about something else. The and is an indication that he's moving from transitioning from one thought to another. Now, brother, that's a big deal. There's a reason there's two Corinthian letters, not one. The first Corinthian letter was written to the Corinthian church because there was such a chasm between Paul and the church because they were being led by false teachers that Paul had to send them a letter of correction. And through that letter of correction, he got word from Titus that eventually they came to a place of repentance. Hence the second letter. He wrote the first letter with a broken heart. I can prove this to you in 2 Corinthians 2.4. He's talking about his original letter and he says, Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote to you with many tears. This is Paul. I wrote with you, to you with many tears. Not so that you would, be, you would be made sorrowful, but that you might know the love which I have especially for you. That was Paul's heart towards the Corinthian church. I wrote that first letter not because I want to make you sad, but because I wanted you to understand how much I love you. And true love will always tell the truth about your situation. So many people are willing to let their friends die and go to hell because they ain't going to tell them the truth. I told you all this last week, or maybe I didn't, that the, the wounds of an 
The enemy multiplies his kisses, but the wounds of a friend can be trusted. And so he wounded them, not to make them sorrowful, to let them know where they were in correction or needed to be corrected. In that truth-telling, the chasm was closed and relationship was formed again. Why do I tell you that? I tell you that because we give. This gracious work is a relational work. I give because I got brothers and sisters all over the world that need me to give. Can God supernaturally meet their needs? Yes. But for whatever reason, He's decided to use us. I got family in this city. I got family all around the world. I gave you testimony a couple weeks ago of a Middle Eastern pastor that got sliced open with a with a hand sickle. We were able to pay his medical bills so that he could get well. And he's out preaching the gospel this morning. Because he's family. And because the relational work of giving has to be a relational work. My family's not going to need for anything if I can help it. I don't know if y'all know this. If you got Facebook, you've seen it probably. Maybe. I got a new grandbaby. And I love this grandbaby, man. Like, I go full stupid when this grandbaby's around. But that grandbaby is never going to need anything in his whole life. He might want for some stuff, but he'll never need anything. I'm going to do everything I can to take care of him. But I'll tell you, Meemaw has just gotten plain ridiculous. Because he's family, she tends to him, loves him, takes care of him, nourishes him, makes sure he has everything that he needs, buys him more clothes that he can wear until he, before he grows out of them. He meets, she meets his need much the same way God meets our need. It's funny, we were at the house yesterday and we had the baby and he was taking a nap and we were just sitting in the, in the bed talking, watching him sleep and he started stirring and in my mind I'm all, she's always talking about how she's just, she's tough and she's, she's not babying him and all this kind of stuff which is absolutely not true. I've never met a mama or a grandmama that doesn't baby their babies. And so she, uh, she starts talking all this smack and all this trash. And I, it got, I got it in my head. I said, all right, well, he's starting to wake up. I'm going to time her. See how long from the first noise he makes till the time it takes her to pick, her up, pick him up. See how long that'll be. You know how, she, you know how far she got? I was pretty impressed. A whopping four seconds <laughs> from uh, to can we love each other like that? It's a funny story, man, but can we love each other like that? Because that's what we do in our giving. Because there's people in need. What are they in need of? They're in need of physical things. But more importantly, their physical is going to go away. 
and I don't want to. I want to make sure my spiritual family and my flesh family that that circle is unbroken. It's a relational work. That's why he calls them brothers. Secondly, the gracious work is not a conditional work. Gracious work is not a conditional work. Let me read this to you. Verse 2, And in a great ordeal of affliction, their abundance of joy and their deep poverty overflowed in the wealth of their liberality, which means generosity. Hold on a second. I want you to hear me. What was their situation? What was their circumstance? Man, they were afflicted. They were in deep poverty. But because of the grace they had been given, they had an abundance of joy. Can I tell you, it doesn't matter what our situation is. We are expected to be givers. Because Christ died so that Christ died giving his life for us so that we could tell other people about Jesus. It doesn't matter what your affliction is. Their affliction was pretty tough. If you'll read Acts chapter 17, it talks about Paul's trans, uh, missionary trip through Thessalonica and the, and the Berean church. And in those instances where he goes to visit them, the Thessalonians try to drag them into the city. Couldn't find them, so they drug someone else out of their home. In Berea, they followed Paul to, Thessal- to Berean from Thessalonica to do the same thing. I can almost guarantee that they didn't drag them out of their homes to say, Yay, Jesus. You know what they drug them out of their homes for? To kill them, bury them up to their neck, and stone them to death. This is what they were seeing. This is what they were dealing with. We think we know affliction in America. They know affliction. They knew affliction. But because they they had tasted grace, their affliction was no circumstance to them. They were a poor church for a bunch of reasons. Three primarily. I'll just tell you a couple. One is most of those churches were attended heavily by women and women weren't bread makers back then. Bread earners. I guess they were all bread makers. I try to save all my dad jokes for the third service. So but they weren't primary bread earners. And where there were no men, there was no money. And those men that had committed their life to the Lord and had committed themselves to the church, which just so you know was the same thing. Because if you belong to the Lord, you belong to the church and you should be committed to the church. But those men that had committed themselves to the Lord and to church were part of unions. They were tradesmen. Weren't any computer technicians back in the day. There were iron workers. There were pottery makers. There were artisans. And to be part of those trades, you had to be part of their guild or their union, which doesn't seem like that big a deal, but in order to be part of the, the pot makers' union, you had to participate in the worship of their particular idol because every guild had its own idol, its patron saint, if you will. 
And if you didn't bow down before that, you didn't work there. So they were poor because they wouldn't bow down before anything other than Jesus. Man, is this speaking to you guys the way it speaks to me? They were afflicted. They were poor. It says deep poverty. That means great, great destitution. Had very little money. But Paul's bragging on them for their giving. That freaks me out a little bit. Because we need to move as, from an American society as American society to realize that God is going to brag on your giving if your giving is two nickels. If your giving comes from your heart and it's what He told you to give. So the difference, I don't know if it's a difference, but I'm trying to tell you, I'm not trying to pressure you into giving a particular amount. I'm trying to tell you that giving is obligatory in the kingdom of God as a grace because God gave us grace. Amen? So there's this thing. Affliction plus poverty plus grace equals abundance of joy. How does that work? That math doesn't work anywhere but the kingdom of God. Affliction plus poverty sprinkled with grace or deluged in grace equals joy. Abundance of joy, which means more joy than you can handle. More joy than you can comprehend. Overflowing joy. This shouldn't surprise us. James said the same thing in James chapter 1, verses 2. He said this, Consider it all joy. Now he's talking to a persecuted church because this is chapter 1 verse 2. Chapter 1 verse 1 says to the church that has been scattered. They were scattered because they were persecuted. He says, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Man, if the church could just grab a hold of this. Count it joy. To be wrecked for Jesus. Count it joy to be wrecked for the work of God. You know why we should be? Because if you continue on, it tells us, and this is a summation, that those trials test our faith. Our faith testing brings perseverance. And so I go through this trial and, I, and I, God sees me through it. And I get confident in Him. And I have endurance to deal with the next trial. And in that endurance, I'm perfected. Because that's going to be a continual process until I go home. And in my perfection, I spend eternity with Jesus. You want to know how I count it all joy? There's been times in my life I didn't have any money. There's been times in my life, much to my own doing, probably. There's a bunch of times where I've I've had people abuse me and talk ugly to me or about me to other people. I tell you, as a Christian, you count it all joy. Because that proves your faith. Which increases your endurance. Which increases more endurance. Which, once this life is over, leads you into the presence of God. That is so good. Count it all joy. Number three. 
The gracious work is an enthusiastic work. Verses 3-6 through For I testify that according to their ability and beyond their ability they gave of their own accord. Which means they gave what they had and then they gave some more. And then they gave some more and they tried to give some more. Even though they had very little. Begging us with much urging for the favor of participation in the support of the saints. Get your mind around that. How many of you guys are excited when the offering bucket rolls around? I am. How many of you guys have ever one time thought in the middle of my preaching, man, I wish Pastor Jim would just be quiet and give us a chance for Trent to pass the buckets one more time? Man, I just, I, I want to just beg him, man, just let me give us a little bit more. Stop talking just long enough for me to put another check in the bucket. Right, it's ridiculous, isn't it? Except that it's not. This is the attitude we should have towards giving. That we beg for the opportunity to give. Why? There's an old song that Angela and I started listening to when we first got saved. I can't remember what it was. It's when I meet them or something like that. Thank you for giving to the Lord. And in this, in this song, he talks about this guy going into heaven. And he says, let me introduce you to this guy. Or this guy comes up to him and says, you remember you taught my Sunday school class? Because you taught my Sunday school class, I'm here today. Thank you for giving to the Lord. And then he moved on. He goes, hey, do you remember when you didn't have it, but you go that $20 of that missionary came to your church one time? I got saved under that missionary's ministry. Can I tell you, thank you for giving to the Lord. I want to give to the Lord. I want to beg for opportunities. Angela and I have a minimum offering that we give no matter what church service we go to. We sit in three services a Sunday and write, write a check for every service. You know why? Because we get to. And we didn't take the amount that we were going to give and divide it into a third. We take the amount and write three checks for that amount. Because we get to. Because it's a gracious work that proves that we love you and we love God and we love those that don't know God yet. Why are we building this church? Why are we doing this? We're doing this so that people might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. That there might be a place where they can be equipped to go out into their community, their two-thirds unsaved community, and declare the name of Jesus. And they'll have 500 foot of road frontage to drive past to ignore us. But we have to be willing to work according to Paul in this gracious work. That's so good. We give as, a great, as our greatest response, as a faith statement, that God is going to take care of us. And God is going to open doors for ministry for us. And finally, number four. Paul stops talking about the Macedonian church and addresses the Corinthians directly in verse 7. 
The number four is the gracious work remembers the gracious work. He stops talking to them about Macedonia, starts talking to them about them and says, But just as you abound in everything, in faith and utterance and knowledge and in all earnestness and in the love we inspired in you, see that you abound in this gracious work also. This gracious work is what? Given. And so I talk to you. And I am so proud if you might allow me to use the word because I don't know anything else to say. I beam with it. Proud to be able to say this about Launch Point Church. As you abound in everything, in your faith, in utterance, in knowledge, and in your earnestness, and in the love that's been inspired in you, abound in this gracious work also. He says, I am not speaking this as a command, but as proving through the earnestness of others the sincerity of your love also. It's a gracious work. I can't get up here and tell you, everybody get your checkbook out, I need you to write me a $1,000 check. And wouldn't if I could. One, some of you guys don't have that kind of money. Most importantly, God hasn't told you to give that money. And so I tell you these things not as a command to you, but as an opportunity for you to prove the love that you have to God and to those that don't know Him yet. And to those that do, that they might have a place where they can be equipped to tell those that do not. Verse 9 ends like this. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though He was rich, yet for your sake He became poor, so that through His poverty you might become rich. Greatest, only real reason to give is that God so loved the world He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. We live in a post-Christian world that doesn't know that truth. They don't know that Jesus took the debt that we couldn't pay, that He became sin so that He could be sin on our behalf, so that He could take the punishment that we deserve according to Romans 3.23, so that He could be Lord. He walked in this earth as flesh, all of this according to the Word. Why did He do it? It says He did it so He could be our perfect high priest. So that He can understand our afflictions and what we're going through. And so that He could defeat those things. And now He sits at the right hand of God making intercession on our behalf. You know why He did all that? He did all that so Jim Cubic lowly, nobody, foul-mouthed, drunkard, whoremonging Jim Cubic might be able to confidently step into the throne room of grace and expect to receive mercy in my time of need. Two-thirds of our population have never known that they have a right 
because of the work that Christ did on their behalf already to step into that throne room. As we consider our gracious work, as we do what I've asked you to do, which is to take one of those commitment cards, one of those pledge cards, and pray over it over the next two weeks. That's all I want from you is to ask God, what is the gracious work I should be doing so that you can be known? Regardless of my affliction, regardless of my poverty, but because you extended me grace, let me show someone else the joy that I carry. Amen.